Welcome to Stories from the Center of the Universe, the podcast about the human experience. Hamill Jones, welcome to the Center of the Universe. Thanks, Paul. Good to be here. You and I uh, share St. Christopher's in common. We share the love of basketball. We're going to talk uh, in some depth about what I would argue is the biggest victory in the history of St. Christopher's, not just basketball, but in sports. So let, let's lay it out at the top. You, you in the last, it's been about a month or it's so? It's been about a month, yes. Yeah, what, what happened about a month ago at St. Christopher's uh, against a top opponent? So we played John Marshall, who is one of the premier, is the premier program in, in Richmond and arguably Virginia and nationally known and uh, I have to actually go back a year ago we played at their place the game came up uh, an opportunity to play came up pretty late in the year first time y'all have played them we have played them before but it had been a number of years okay and they've always been good but we had not played them when they were at their current level right and um, a year ago we had a chance to go play them late in the year and we jumped at the opportunity um we got beat pretty handily, lost by 42. You remember exactly uh, how many points Remember you lost the score, <laughs> 100, 100 to 58. Wow. But our, but our guys battled and competed, and there were segments where we showed we can play with these guys. Um, and when you say these guys, they're taller. They, they, I'm guessing are, are they, on average more athletic. They, they have Yeah, they have great size, um, skill, well-coached, um, uh, just an excellent program. But we, we had glimpses in that game a year ago that showed we could play with them. And they then go back maybe five weeks ago, uh, they lost a game. A team they were going to play could no longer play. We had an open date on the schedule. Oh, this is like you guys taking a fight on uh, like two days' notice. Both teams. Oh, both teams. Both. So we yeah. were uh, the game ended up being played on a Friday night. Coach White and I were texting on Wednesday night about whether or not we could make it happen and what gym might be available. And we agreed that we could play on Wednesday night. And credit to Coach White and John Marshall for being willing to come to our place yeah. and take a road game. Uh, that's something in college basketball. You never te- Teams are always looking about whether or not it's going to be a home game or an away game. And that's one reason you don't often see Power 5 teams going to – that really tough mid-major road game. Yeah. And so credit to them for being willing to come play at our place, which is um, very tight confines. We have but, a but great loud. crowd, very loud. loud. It's, a, it's a great atmosphere to play in, but it can be tough for the opposition. And we got down nine to nothing. Mm. Wasn't looking good. Uh, had maybe, I tried to keep glimpses of last year out of my mind. And then of all things are, our uh, big guy, Darius Gray, hit a three. Does he it's normally a, take threes? No, he does not normally take threes. <laughs> and uh, he's an excellent player, but he, he's an inside guy. But late in the shot clock, he took a three and he hit it, and that took the lid off the basket. Mm. And um, then our guys just made plays. Brandon Jennings, who's going to VCU, was incredible. Uh, just all over the floor, impacting the game in so many ways. Stu Cosby had five threes. Mm. Uh, our other guys, Kellen Welch and Sonny Bridges, um, they battled defensively, and uh, we we pulled out a fifty-three to fifty win. So it was pretty exciting. 
not that you want to give away any of your coaching secrets, but was there a particular strategy at, at play at a high level that you can talk about? The the big thing, first and foremost, aside from strategy, was belief. Mm. So we we talked about last year's game, and we got down seventeen to two. Um, but then we talked about the next stretch of that game where we outplayed them, you know, for a, you know ten minutes or so, and uh, and won that ten minute segment. And we got down seventeen to two a year ago. We didn't handle their full court pressure well, and credit to them. But we had played the night before; it was our senior night. Having a game the day before you play John Marshall is not a good recipe for success. Right. So we went into our Thursday practice this year and said, "This is different. We have an opportunity to practice, so we need to be really good on the practice floor today to be ready to handle their full court pressure." If we take care of that, we won't be down 17 to two. Now it only ended up being nine to nothing, so that was better than 17 to two. Um, but I think the guys believed. And then from a scheme standpoint, we really worked on guarding their post players so that they would have to work. Uh, we, we wanted them to take jump shots or have to shoot instead of slam dunks, maybe they're making a post move from six to eight feet away. Right. So we had that practice time, and I think the guys believed, and uh, and then they just played their hearts out. And the I, I definitely think our crowd played a role in it too. They were electric. I mean, it's probably the biggest uh, visiting visiting team to ever come to that gym. Yeah, it was. I mean, it was. In, so uh, I've had the good fortune to be around St. Chris basketball for a long time. Uh, I went to St. Chris as a kid. I used to go to every home game. I would sit behind the bench. Uh, I always wore shorts, too, no matter what the weather was like because I wanted to shoot on the court after the game, right. and I didn't want to be wearing my school pants. So I went in my gym clothes to be ready to play as soon as the game ended. And uh, you know, then as a player and now 15 years as a coach, I've been fortunate to see a lot of games at St. Chris. And what struck me was how – crowded the gym was 45 minutes before tip-off there wasn't a jv game so oh. we have a jv game beforehand and i mean people came early and they were just sitting there watching warm-ups in a packed gym were so, they were they there because they were super excited to see what was going to happen they, they were excited uh, yeah, obviously john marshall's a big draw but um, we've got a we've got a really good team and and then when you have a player like brandon jennings uh one of the top players in the city. I think he is the top player in the city. VCU commit. Um, they knew it was going to be an exciting matchup. So basketball fans were intrigued. St. Chris fans were intrigued. I know we saw some black and gold uh, Ram fans in the crowd. Um, Coach Odom was there. Oh, nice. And it was pretty neat. His father, Dave, the longtime Wake Forest and assistant uh, at UVA, assistant at UVA, Wake Forest, South Carolina coach. He was there, so it was a. Oh, he came to. He, he came to the game Dave, as well. Dave was in the house. Remind yeah. me to tell you a funny story after this recording. Yeah, about it, it was fun. I'd never met him before, but uh, I got to chat with him, and and uh, both of the Odoms were. I mean, they couldn't be nicer. Yeah. So it was great to see them. And you could tell that uh, the younger Odom is cut from the same cloth oh, as yes. Dad. Yes. Yeah. Both very nice, but you can see that. There, there's, there's an that intensity. burning intensity there as yeah. well, in a good way. Yeah, no doubt. And so you mentioned y'all lost by 42 mm -hmm. uh, the prior season. 
I think they were crowned by, I don't know who crowns national champions at, at the high school level, but they were crowned by somebody to be the national championship from last year. Yes, I mean, and, and they were, uh, yeah, they were phenomenal. Now, there were two, two uh, players that were on last year's team for John Marshall that are now making uh, major contributions at NC State and Vanderbilt. But they also have some new talented guys on their team as well as some of the familiar faces from last year. Who were the uh, kids that lost by 42 that then were part of that victory? Brandon sounds like he's one of them. So Brandon was Brandon was one of them. Um, in terms of getting major time on the floor, it would have been Brandon, Darius, and Sonny Bridges, another starting guard. Uh, Stuart Cosby would have played some in that game. Kellen Welch was on the team, but he didn't play much. Uh, but in the in the forty two point loss, Brandon had a really big time slam dunk in transition um, over uh, one of their top players, and uh, that injected. The impact of that play, I think we felt this year. Wow! You know, when you go, when you're playing a really good team, and you see their their talent, and you know, hey, we got a guy on our team that can dunk over that guy. Yeah, like he might do that again tonight. That knowing you have that guy in Brandon on your team, I think gave gave everybody confidence. I mean, I've never seen Brandon play. I saw some highlights from the John Marshall game. I mean, obviously, if he's uh, a commit to VCU, he's a very talented player because VCU's always had a really good basketball program. He, he is, and uh, he impacts the game in so many ways. His feel is really high. You know, um, he just does natural basketball things without being coached. Um, and that, you know, he's been well coached, and he trains really hard, uh, but he's just got – He'll make the right play at the right time. He'll throw the pass when it needs to be thrown uh, right on the money. He knows when it's time to go get a basket. He rebounds really well. Um, he's a great ball handler. So he's just a calming, steady presence on the floor. And, and everybody makes mistakes. So I imagine for him, when he does make a mistake, it's like, what just happened? That's, that, that very, very rarely happens. Yeah, he, he, uh, he, he doesn't make... So he doesn't make uh, very many mental mistakes. Everybody misses a shot, and I sure. guess that could be classified as a mistake, but that's just part of the game. Um, but his feel is really, really high level, and that's why I think he's going to be a big contributor next year to VCU because some guys, when they come out of high school, they maybe all they do is score, and that's what they're focused on. And then you get to college, and they already have guys that can score. Right. And if you want to get on the floor, you've got to be able to defend or be a great passer, uh, do something in addition to scoring because not many college coaches are going to say, we're going to run our offense through a freshman. Right. So Brandon can score, but he'll be able to impact the game in a wide range of ways. And that's why I think VCU is getting a really special player. I mean, back in the day, they didn't allow freshmen to play. <laughs> right, right, right. Yeah. <laughs> Like literally no one. Right. Like the best freshman in the country didn't get to play varsity. And it's even harder now with NIL because college basketball is getting older. Mm. Uh, players that might have been incentivized to. Those borderline guys are staying. Yeah, you know, or to, to go play professional, whether it's in the NBA or overseas and get a paycheck, they can stay in college and get NIL money. Yeah. Um, or, 
programs will get uh, transfers that come from maybe a power five but want more playing time. And so college basketball across the, the board is getting older and Good. I think bigger that's, and stronger. That's great. It's great for the college game in some ways, but it's harder for those high school recruits uh, that are coming in as freshmen. Yeah, I remember when uh, everybody did four years at the same school. There was none of this transfer portal nonsense, and I'm old enough to call it nonsense. Uh, NIL wasn't a thing. And then Kentucky, quickly followed by Duke, and I know you're a Duke fan. I'm, I'm not, just to put that out there. Um, they, they were great recruiters. I mean, and they had a brand name that was impossible to beat, and they brought in – what, three to seven one-and-done kids every year, Kentucky especially for the longest time. But Duke's been doing it for a right, while, right. too. Zion yeah. Williamson being uh, – his class being the most recent, like, obvious example. But it's been true since Zion, and it was true probably four or five years before Zion. Anyway, you brought up NIL. You're a high school coach, but what do you think the impact of NIL has been on colleges? Well, the it's been exciting to see older players making an impact. And you mentioned I'm a Duke fan. I'm still recovering from the uh, the big win that North Carolina had the other night. UNC still recovered, uh, too, given their game last night. But without NIL, I mean, I think there's a really good chance that Armando Baycott is playing professionally somewhere right now, if not last year or the year before. Right. But now it's a great opportunity for him to play at a wonderful university and a wonderful basketball program. Um uh, you know, continuing with his education and at the same time be able to make some money. Yeah. Uh, so college basketball has gotten older and, you know, that can be fun as a fan because you can see, I, you know, as you mentioned Duke, I, I did miss watching the progression of a lot of players from freshman to sophomore, junior, senior year, seeing how they grow and matured. Yeah. And um, NIL has helped keep guys around a little bit longer but it's also, and one thing that is harder is for freshman recruits because a lot of colleges are going to want to go after the guy in the portal. Right. They'll get a seasoned 20, 21, 22 year old rather than a 18 or 19 year old who, if things don't go exactly how they want, could potentially be a risk to transfer. And so a team may be looking at four or five freshmen, and now they're maybe looking at two or three. Yeah, they'll go with their top two or three in the fall. Uh, who they think maybe can impact the game right away, and then um, keep a couple spots in reserve for the spring to see what's available in the portal. Whereas in the past, I think a lot of schools might have said, we're going to get four or five freshmen. Here are two or three that we think are going to play next year, but here are two or three that we're going to get in the weight room or red shirt and develop. And uh, so the recruiting landscape has changed. And that's why for a guy like Brandon, the fact that the recruitment that he had, I think – really speaks to the kind of player he is because he had a number of great opportunities um, and, you know, are schools that he's going to have to work but believe that he can be impactful early. So NIL, in your estimation, is generally a good thing? Uh, I, think, I think generally it's a good thing, but there, it, from my – and, again, I'm not an expert uh, – it seems like there needs to be some legislation or – because it's kind of the Wild West, cover. right? It's the Wild West. I mean, Rick Pitino recently just said there should at least be a salary cap because now it's like <laughs> there's no salary cap and it's constant free agency. Yeah. and It's, uh, a, it's like pro sports. Yeah, it's like pro sports, but without the 
real yeah. money. Like the, and the real money and also the, the contractual obligation, so to speak, in mm. that um, I think coaches, Gino Ariyama, the one of the, you know, famous, wonderful UConn women's basketball coach talked about how hard it is to coach a kid now in this area era because they can leave so easily. And it can take a special kid that wants to be coached hard, that wants to go through the bumps in the road that all college athletes experience. Yeah, you get pressure, it's college one, just go to college yeah, two. Yeah, exactly. Or you're you're not getting enough playing time at college one, just go to college two. And some kids and I think you just need a waiver to do this. You could, over four years, play at four different institutions. Yeah, I think, uh, I mean, right now, um, another VCU guy, wonderful young man, Joe Bamisil, and I'm glad he's playing for VCU and has ended up home and in a great spot and that, uh, fortunately, he's now able to play because the NCA wasn't allowing him to play at the beginning of the year hmm. uh, for some reason. But you know, Joe, Joe has been – he played at Virginia Tech and George Washington, Oklahoma, and VCU. In four years. In, uh, or, I believe so, yeah. yes. And, and COVID had things to do with that and family circumstances. Um, I'm really happy for Joe that he ended up back home and doing well. But um, trying to help players and coaches you know, have the opportunity to uh, – be where they want to be, but also at the same time allow for relationships between coaches and players to develop and for the I think I think for college athletes to go through an experience where they they're able to unpack their bags for a little while and lay down some roots can be a good thing. I I mean I'm biased because that's how I watched kids go through college for the longest time. Um, those roots are pretty powerful, but I get it. Like if, if Something not great is happening at College One, right? Maybe right. College Two, and and that is not all bad. That that can be really good for the kid in, in some cases. And I, and I'm glad for the players too um, that they can make some money. I was worried about, you know, so I mean I think back. I was very fortunate uh, as a mediocre college player in Division Three back in the day, but I played about two hours away from Richmond, and my parents could drive to my games. And uh, you know, could go to basically every game. And uh, I've always wondered about what if there's a young man who goes to a college far from home, so his parents can't get to every game or get there regularly, and there's an expense involved. You know, who pays for that? You know, this the poor parents unfortunately can't go see their son or daughter play, and that doesn't seem right. So I'm now I'm happy that with NIL kids can make some money so that they can do things like that if their parents want to come see them play. They've got some dollars in their pocket to help with that. No, that, uh, yeah, it's still a meritocracy. So the, the best of the best are yep. making the most money. It, it's America, it's capitalism, it's all that. But it's certainly opening doors for more kids and their families than it would have otherwise. All right, you, you mentioned Baycott, and I, and I think back to the John Marshall game. You, there was a six nine. There's a six nine kid on that team. There's mm -hmm. a six seven kid on that team. Darius is your tallest kid. Dar uh, Darius, he's six four, two eighty five. We've got two guys that are taller than him, but they're not six eighty five. Yeah, maybe one eighty five. Yeah. <laughs> so, so two eighty five and six four is a pretty powerful combination. Right. Right. But still, going up against that kind of height, yeah. 
is uh, hard for me to fathom as a guy who played at the same school in the 80s. We weren't going against guys that big. And I, I know that Armando Baycott played at Trinity Episcopal, and, and you coached for 15 mm-hmm. years, so you coached against him. I mean, how do you deal with a guy that big? I mean, well, he, he dwarfed everybody else on the court. He had to have. Yes, he did. And one of the from a scheme standpoint, we didn't want to let John Marshall just have a direct pass into the post. So we wanted to do what we call three-quartering, which is uh, kind of a coaching point we talked to our guys about you need to be able to breathe into their big man's ear. Mm. And then you need to have, so your, your chest is right up basically on his shoulder so you could you know, breathe in his ear. And yeah. then you have your other hand uh, at an angle up in front of his face so that a passer sees a defender draped on top of him. If they lob it over the top, we need to have our guards and weak side help so that they can come and, and sandwich them. Triple team. Triple team. I mean, there were times from a basketball standpoint, I used to watch clips of how teams would guard Ralph Sampson back in the day. And sometimes he would have three guys around him, one in the front, one in the back, you know, one on the side. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, and then – and that's that was our key. And, um, you know, also the ball's got to bounce the right way a time or two, and fortunately it did. So y'all beat Trinity when Baycott was there. Oh, oh, I was thinking. Uh, no, we did not. Uh, we beat him. It was we beat him when he was a freshman. But in my time, I have never seen a player go from freshman to sophomore year and be such a drastically different guy. Physically or, or skill wise or both. Both. Uh, when he w- when he was in the game as a freshman, uh, compared to the other guys they had at the time, it was a good thing. Yeah. He, he just, uh, you know, he was younger and maybe not as big and a little slower, but he was just dominant as a sophomore. And uh, you know, credit to him for the work that he put in. But it was, uh, I remember our guys just—he was so good getting rebounds and finishing and good touch around the basket. Uh, I'm not surprised he's had the great career that he's had. But between coaching against him at Trinity and then being a Duke fan, like he has been in my basketball nightmares for a decade, and I'm ready for him. I'm not. A, I don't have an NBA team. I'm ready for him to go on, have a great career, and I don't have to worry about him anymore. Yeah, because he's he's very very good. I mean, I I would argue maybe for the last two, maybe even three years, he's been the best big man in the country. Yep, yep. No, he is, and I think they win a national championship. Uh, against Kansas if he doesn't roll his ankle. Right. Because they, they were up, and he just hurt himself, and you hate for a guy to get hurt, and no, uh, especially in that moment. And Kansas was able to make, make a run. Um, I was actually at that game, but my seats were up at the top of the Superdome, so I can't say I actually could see everything that was going on. Could you see the ball at least? Uh, if I put my two finger my, – my, Pinky and my uh, pointer finger together, I could put the court in between my fingers when I looked from my seat. So, <laughs> so finding the ball, you're, you're going to have to make some educated guesses. Exactly. Is. And actually, thinking back to the Superdome, not only uh, my dad and I, when I was a kid, we were at the uh, Carolina-Michigan Final Four in 93 mm. when Chris Weber called the timeout. Oh, you were at that game. We were at that game, and pre-social media, cell phones. So we were, again, in the rafters, and I had – zero idea what was going on. That was total chaos. But you were there. But I was there. Yep. (laughs) All right, we're going to jump all the way back. Where were you born and raised? 
So I was born uh, here in Richmond, uh, lived here basically my whole life, and um, went to St. Chris for 13 years. Yeah, I was talking to uh, Tim McCoy. We can mention his name. He loves hearing his name on this podcast. Uh, before you came over, and he said, oh, yeah, he's a true saint. And I knew what he meant. He was going to say K through 12. And I'm like, I, and I didn't say this to him, but I'm, am I not a true saint? I only did 8 through 12. Do you have to, what if you started in first grade? Does that make you a true saint? Uh, anyway, Tim. You're a true saint for sure. You are. <laughs> I'll, t- I'll take it. Uh, yeah, I think anybody that, that goes there and contributes in some way to the school is absolutely a true saint. But it's just funny his phrasing. But anyway, but K through 12, and you grew up like not far at all from the campus. Yeah, my dad, uh, folks are divorced, but both live within a mile of, of uh, the campus. And my dad still lives right behind the football field. Mm. And uh, when he bought that house, I'm convinced he did it for two reasons. One, it was right by school. And then it was essentially in between school and the uh, Maple and Patterson Pizza Hut. So we had school covered and dinner. He's a big pizza fan. Yeah. And, and uh, so that's, uh, that's actually been a Sad loss for that neighborhood. The, yeah, it's the not there. Patterson Pizza Hut is no more. Yeah. I, I ate the buffet there. It was there forever. Lot. It was there for. It was an institution. Yeah, the, that part of town has changed some, but it hasn't changed that much, actually. Yeah, no, there are a lot of a lot of uh, uh, traditional staples there, but it, it's growing up a little bit. Uh, the 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 place to eat those the Westwood uh, Pharmacy. Yeah, that's that, been there. That's that's since. that happening spot. It's been there. Since probably the '60s, I'm guessing. Yeah, it's been there for a while. Good place to walk through after the team wins, but you know, yeah. after a tough loss, maybe, maybe not. So, what was it like going to St. Christopher's uh, K through eight? What was that like? So, so I, I loved it. Uh, still close with my buddies. That's one of the special things about going to school there for a long time. You develop great relationships with your friends, and you know what they're about, and you've been through the ups and downs together. Um, then a special part of the experience for me, um, I was around campus all the time. I mentioned I went to the basketball games. I was a ball boy for the football team when I was in fifth grade. Um, I, there were so many teachers and coaches that uh, paid an interest in me when I needed it yeah. know, during some tough times. And I just, I liked them. I, I liked what they were about. Um, I liked the values that they embodied and I remember thinking this is this would be a wonderful profession if I were fortunate enough to be able to pursue it and so I knew I wanted to become a teacher and coach and uh, then to be able to work with a number of those teachers and coaches as colleagues has been pretty special too yeah it just hit me uh, I was in the middle school for a year uh, and certainly upper school for four every single teacher uh, shared this notion of a, a, a great value system uh, which meant they were decent people. And I say that in the, in the most positive, most powerful way possible. Uh, they were there to support and care for kids when they needed it. They were there to challenge them when they needed it, but it was always coming from this place of decency and care. Uh, and yeah, I, I, um, I do not regret one minute of being there other than I, I wish there were more classes with, with uh, young ladies right, right. <laughs> outside of that. There, there were times where uh, now, now they have a lot of uh, co-ed classes in high school, and I think that's, that's good for making sure that the boys, um, when they go off to college, they're going to be 
uh, in classes with women and professionally, they're going to be working with women, working for women. Right. Um, it's really good for them to experience that co-ed nature Absolutely. Of, of, of the academic setting. But I think when they're younger, boys and girls oftentimes learn different and develop at different rates and times. Oh, and, girls are way ahead of boys. And, yeah, gr- girls yeah. can be a lot more mature. And, and uh, so it can be good to have that for certain kids, that uh, single-sex educational setting. Uh, and then, and then older, when they get older, we'll get them ready to go off into the real world. Yeah, absolutely. Um, but you mentioned the, the teachers and the coaches. I can remember. Did you ever have Carl Koenig? Absolutely, he's my co- coach, my uh, junior basketball. Yeah. Okay, yeah. So he was he, uh, he he's in the Randolph Macon Basketball Hall of Fame as he should be. Played for Paul Webb, and uh, I remember at one point he knew I loved basketball. I, I don't think I'd even was maybe in his history class at the time, but hadn't played for him. But he gave me a copy of the book, A Sense of Where You Are by John McPhee. And it's about the the great New York Nick and Princeton basketball player, Bill Bradley. And just how he became a great player and on and off the court. And I just, I've always remembered that because one, Coach Koenig didn't have to share that book with me could have easily walked away and and also it, it was a connection through basketball but also by giving me a book it demonstrated you know the intellectual the intellectual side of coach Koenig so there were so many teachers and coaches where you could see they were passionate about their subject but also loved their sport too and that that made an impression and they were always uh mindful of how can I help these kids that are in my charge kind of yep. thing did you uh, did you ever have to coach Koenig? Uh, used, he called when we when I played for him. He called his uh, sprinting series that would get you in shape from a conditioning standpoint. Before the season or during? Uh, before the season, and then if we uh, misbehaved or didn't do what we we're supposed to, it certainly happened during the season. But he <laughs> called his sprints shuffles. <laughs> And it seemed to imply that, you know, that might be enjoyable. And Coach Koenig's shuffles were not, were not fun. No, no, they were not. Yeah, I, I was the, uh, the bridge from Koenig to uh, Kemper or Carl and, and Dick uh, my junior, senior year. And I, I just called them suicides. And we would, I, this, I'm sure this still happens today. Maybe you employ this in practice. Like, we're all going to shoot free throws. And if, if you miss one across, I don't know, 12, 15 kids, you could be running 15 you, suicides you could be, a day. You could, you could be on the line for sure. And if you're the 12th kid, you're exhausted shooting that free throw. There, there was like, Coach Koenig definitely had us in shape. That's for sure. <laughs> yeah, I, I don't think I had uh, the shuffles. Uh I never experienced that. Maybe he hadn't uh, incorporated that into his program yet, or uh, because I was playing football, I, did, I didn't have to go through that. But I, yeah. So we were in uh, the eighth grade teams at St. Chris, and I should know this and I don't, but the eighth grade sports teams are called the Bulldogs. Yeah. So we're the St. Christopher Saints, but you talk about Bulldog basketball, everybody at St. Chris knows that's eighth grade basketball, Bulldog right. football, eighth grade football. Coach Koenig called his sprints Bulldog Shuffles. <laughs> so I guess he went from varsity to Bulldog? He did. He okay. did. Yeah, yeah. And uh, he, uh, he was a great coach. And uh, it was, he retired um, in the early 2000s, I think, and moved to Bedford and volunteered to coach with the, some of the basketball teams in Bedford, Virginia. And he and I would correspond um, – and he was just as sharp as ever and yeah. studying the game 
even after he retired. And, and that was something I also took from him, just never thinking you've got all the answers. And this is a guy that he, he has forgot. He, he's forgotten more basketball than I'll probably ever know. And he was still looking to learn. And so that was something, the lifelong learning aspect That's I really a, took from him. It's a great lesson. Yeah, Carl, when he was coaching you in eighth grade, was probably the best eighth grade basketball coach, maybe in the mid-Atlantic region. <laughs> yes, he was. <laughs> we, uh, we, uh, and he was competitive, too. And he, he was funny. He would, uh, he, if he disagreed with a call with the official, because you don't get as many fans at an eighth grade game as maybe parents parents as you do yeah as you do at a varsity game so he would work the officials but he was maybe tamer than he would have been at a varsity game so if he didn't like a call instead of saying you know you blew it how could you make that call he would say surely you jest to the official <laughs> and he got his point across yeah he got his point across <laughs> All right, so you weren't just a basketball guy, though. You, did you play other sports? So I played football uh, and then also played baseball. And football was kind of, a, uh, I guess, eighth grade broke my thumb, ninth grade broke my ankle, mm. junior year tore my ACL. Man. So I, I visited the doctor a lot. But I loved, I loved competing. I loved being on a team. Um, I, I really, like, enjoyed being a multi-sport athlete, I think, that's something that, you know, in today's world, I, I get it. There are times you need to specialize, but there's a lot of value from playing a lot of different sports too. Uh, having a different role on a team. Maybe you're a role player on one team, but a star on the other. Right. And therefore, you know what it's like to be in both uh, situations on a team and then also different coaching styles. You know, talked about Coach Koenig. I, I learned a ton from my basketball coaches like him and, a guy named Tom Franz was my varsity coach. He was, he was a wonderful player at uh, Davidson College. And then Kerry uh, Mock and Rich Udipole, uh for basketball, but then Coach Kemper for football, uh, Tony Simandera for baseball. You can pick up ah. so much from being around different coaches. And then think about how lucky you were to yeah. have those guys. Oh, in your it was life. great. Yeah, it was, it was great. Um, and uh, very fortunate. And, and then you can take the things you like about each one of them and work them into your own style. Yeah. And that, that's been helpful. Uh, so you play for uh, Tony. Tony was an assistant coach when I went through, and he became the head coach the year after. So he's been there. He's an institution at St. Christopher's. Um, when people think baseball, St. Christopher's, they certainly think Tony, but maybe even Richmond. Like He's probably one of the first two or three names that people think about for high school baseball in the area. Uh, how would you describe his uh, approach to baseball or just his coaching style in general? And I get that you still work with him. So you right, right. Kind of- yeah, no, it's um, one one thing that I'll uh, – well, a number of things I'll take away from, from watching Tony coach over the years. I'll start with perseverance because um, he didn't always have great teams. And, you know, I played for him and we weren't great. And – you think about so many coaches, um, you know, John Wooden, he wasn't John Wooden until relatively late in his career. Right. He was probably in his fifties. And, and, yeah. uh, Tony, you know, there were some dry spells in terms of talent and, you know, you, you coach each team to the best of your ability. And over time he built St. Christopher's into an incredibly well-respected 
and successful baseball program. So that that commitment and perseverance is something I took from him. Uh, I think he is also adapted and evolved over the years. He was he was very fiery when he was a younger coach, and uh, and you know, you, you didn't want to you know you didn't want to make a mistake. And uh, <laughs> in, in terms of um, not not being afraid to fail and make a play, but you know. You, you knew that he could get on you and you're mindful of that, but yeah. uh, things have changed in terms of how you work with young people and what they're used to. And I think overall there have been a lot of positives, but maybe what some would consider hard coaching, you can't do it quite like you maybe could in the old days. And right. he's really adapted. So it's been interesting to, to see him take on, I, I know he's intense, but there are times where he can very much be in that more, I'll say nurturing role, uh, if, if that's the right way to describe it. You can I think, still be intense and still nurturing. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and the relationship piece I think he's done a great job with. And then also the way he uses his assistant coaches, uh, that's something that's really important. He's got a great staff, and he delegates, and he trusts them. Yeah. Um, so – uh, he, he's done a wonderful job. No, I, I am I am proud to say that I knew him back in the day when he had just come to St. Christopher's and to see what's happened over the last 37 years has been fun to watch. I was laughing with my, my dad recently, kind of a, you know, I was a, I enjoyed playing baseball, but I wasn't a great baseball player, but I was tall and could catch and played first base. And um, one, one year, my senior year, we played at Norfolk Academy and my dad was telling me this the other day. So he drove down to the game, and maybe the first inning, as I remember it, there were two ground balls that were hit to our middle infielders. And maybe the throw was a little off, or I maybe didn't play the position quite properly. But the umpire on each of these two throws said my foot had come off the bag, and so he called the runner safe. And... I was getting frustrated. So then there's a third ground ball that's hit. And it was right to the second baseman, short throw. I was probably standing on first base with two feet, you know, caught it. Standing in the middle of the base. Yeah, clearly out (laughs) and just out of frustration. And I shouldn't have done it, but I turned and looked at the umpire and then I stomped first base before the runner got there before well before the runner got there yeah yeah so he's clearly out and it was sort of like you know did i get him out this time right you know my frustration well he tossed me oh my goodness you know he said you're out of here so then i went back to the dugout and that's where the uh intense tony let me know that my behavior was not appropriately representative of uh, what he wanted from his baseball team. And he, he lit into me as he should have, but then it was worse. I got it from my dad. Cause you knew that was coming. Cause too. he was like, you know, not only did you look like a fool doing that, I drove two hours to Norfolk to watch you play baseball and you got, you kicked, got out. kicked out in the first inning. <laughs> that's the only time I've ever been thrown out of a game. Uh, that's two and a half decades, roughly. Yep. Right. Not, not quite. Uh, and you still remember it. Yep. Like it was yesterday. <laughs> very, very much. When you say you only got kicked out of one game, were the other kids are being kicked out of more games than one? In no, no, I, no. I, we, we, I can't. I don't think I. We weren't getting kicked out very often. So. I don't think we. Uh, back in the eighties, we had the guts to do yeah, what you our, did. Well, our uh, and it wasn't. It wasn't calculated. That was the thing. It was, I, it was kind of spur of the moment frustration. Uh, I should have known better. You know the. 
the male brain still developing in, at, at the time. So. You had seven years to go at that point. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, that's funny. Uh, you think Tony remembers that? I bet he does. I, I think he does. When I, uh, you know, he was my boss as the head of the upper school when I was a history teacher. Oh, yeah. So when I was interviewing for jobs, I, I kind of hoped he had forgotten about it. He's probably seen a lot, but I, I think he let me know at some point he still remembered it. <laughs> That's a pretty memorable thing. I'm sure he hasn't had that many kids get kicked That's out of right. games. That's right. So I, I don't think that my loss was that big of an impact on the team, though. So as long as you had a good backup first right. raise, I guess you're okay. Uh, so when you were a senior in high school, was it about going to a school that was great academically, or was it like, hey, I, I also want to play sports, and so it's this nice mix of being able to play basketball? Because I'm guessing that was your your best sport. Yes. Yeah, so I uh, as I'm. I blew out my knee uh, junior year playing football. So I missed my whole junior basketball season. Oh, it's brutal. So any chance of recruitment. Because they're looking at juniors. Yeah, looking at juniors was out the window. And I'd had an okay sophomore year, but it wasn't anything to write home about. So I went into my senior year not really knowing what I was going to do and how my knee would hold up. And I I played football and had a solid year and then played basketball and, and that went well. And I was actually planning to play football at Washington and Lee. Hmm. Um, in hindsight, a mistake I made was n- only applying to one division three school. Cause I, that, that was the right level for me. Right. Um, and fortunately I, I got into WNL and Wait a minute, um, that's the only school you applied to period or just division only three division three school. Yeah. yeah. And, and fortunately I, I got in and by the time I, was later my senior year I knew I wanted to try to play a sport in college and you know had I had I not gotten into WNL I wouldn't have left myself with good options it would have been a lot harder it would have been a lot harder I would have tried to walk on at a whatever bigger school I went to so now from a one thing I'll tell kids if they want to play a college sport and I'm coaching them and helping with the recruiting process cast a wide net you know apply to your couple of your dream schools um but also make sure you have a number of schools that you're applying to where if you get in, you have a reasonable chance of, you know, making the team, so right, to speak. Right. Um, but then ultimately, I, I liked basketball a little bit better and felt that it was more fun to train in the offseason by playing basketball and working mm-hmm. on basketball than football training. So you're kind of a gym rat. So I was a gym rat and wanted to play basketball. And also I'd, I'd had some concussions playing. I mentioned the injuries playing football. I felt like playing basketball might be uh, healthier for me. And uh, ankles uh, as an exception. Yes. Yeah, exactly. So ended up uh, going to WNL and playing basketball there. Yeah. And how'd you do? Did you play a lot? Um, not a ton my freshman year. And we weren't very good. We were four and twenty. Now the ODAC, the Old Dominion Athletic Conference, was loaded. I mean, who was Mike who Rhodes was, was you know the head coach at Randolph Macon. Macon's been good forever. They've been good forever. Tony Shaver had Hampton Sydney rolling. They were fresh off a national championship game appearance. I didn't realize they'd made it that far. Yeah, ninety nine, I believe they lost to Wisconsin Platteville, who wow. was coached by Bo Ryan, who went on to be the Wisconsin head coach. He was, he was there before he went to Wisconsin? Uh, he was at Wisconsin Platteville, who beat Hampton Sydney in wow. the national championship game. Bridgewater was really good. I mean, the ODAC was loaded. And uh, so we weren't very good. We were 4 and 20. Uh, two things I remember about that season um, 
I was reading a book called, it was Pat Conroy. Have you read any Pat Conroy? No. Um, yeah, the Lords of Discipline and uh, the Great Santini, but he played basketball at the Citadel. Mm. So he wrote a memoir called uh, My Losing Season. And actually, uh, no, I'm getting my stories confused. He wrote a book called My Losing Season. At the end of my four years of WNL, we unfortunately never had a winning season. So I remember thinking, well, I could write a book called My Four Losing Seasons or My <laughs> Losing College Career. Yeah, exactly. And then, uh, but the, uh, the book was, uh, there was a book called The Last Amateurs by John Feinstein, college basketball writer. He's probably the best basketball writer of all time. Yeah, he's great. And uh, he wrote a book chronicling a season in the Patriot League, mm -hmm. which at the time was non-scholarship. One of the guys he profiled was a walk-on on the worst team in the Patriot League. And this guy you know, did the math and said, well, if I'm the worst player on the only non-scholarship Division One team and my team's in last place, I'm probably the worst player in Division One basketball. <laughs> well, at the time, I wasn't playing much on a team that was ended up going 4-20. and 20, And I remember yeah. thinking, geez, am I the worst guy in Division Three? Um, but I really worked and, you know, I ended up by the time, uh, actually my sophomore year was kind of, I was proud of this. There were some things that happened, but I ended up being a captain as a sophomore. Wow. wow. So, so I ended up being a three-year captain at WNL. That's pretty rare. And, uh, you know, I, I felt good about how I carried myself. I wasn't the best player, but I worked hard and I, I tried to compete every day. Uh, have a good attitude, be team first. And I, I carved out a niche as a garbage player that would just set screens, hustle, take charges. Oh, your teammates loved you. you know, throw the ball to the guy that should be shooting, you know, yeah. try to get him open. Sure. Um, and that was kind of my niche. And even though we didn't win as much as we liked, it, it sometimes you know, it really tested me to be on a bad team and to try to just never give up. And, hey, tomorrow's a new day. You know, We got Randolph making tomorrow. They may have beaten us. 10 times previously, but let's, let's lace them up and, and go give them everything we got. And that was valuable. And I knew I wanted to coach. So being able to, you know, I, I, my coaches, even though we weren't very good, I thought I played for great coaches who were wonderful men and really learned a lot. Uh, you could argue that you learn more from uh, those adversities than you do when you're, you're winning all the time. Yeah, no, absolutely. Well, and uh, eventually, and look, life is full of wins and losses. There, there are good days and bad days. Uh, it's a lot easier to get through the bad days when you know that you've persevered uh, for a long period of time prior to that. Right. No, absolutely. And, uh, you know, there were times, like, there were times that, uh, yeah, I remember thinking it, it was good to have an experience where I'm having to deal with something that's hard. You know, going to practice is hard. You know, you have to do the work. And, you have to make certain sacrifices, and then you're not winning. Like you have to handle that the right way. Uh, that's hard, and it, and I look back on it. I'm really glad. And that we were talking about NIL, and you know I can't speak to other people's circumstances, but I know for me there was great value in going through something that was hard over four years, even if it never went my way or the way I wanted or envisioned it going. Uh, there was value in that, and also always appreciated my coaches. You know, they continued to coach me. You know, I had a new uh, one coach my first three years and then a new coach my senior year. And, and there were times that senior year I was in his doghouse, 
but he never, he kept coaching me and I kept working. And so I'm, you know, that was something I took away. And, and, uh, you know, also I was in college, I was a sophomore when 9-11 happened and remember where I was on campus on that horrible day. And, you know, we, we, we had, there were men and women my age that were, serving and their kids quit college to serve yeah and and you know here i am being able to play college basketball at that time and that's not hard compared to what so many of our brave men and women were doing at that time yeah everything's relative yep yeah no it's uh well said and i I appreciate that perspective it's uh it's funny you're a duke fan 9-11 happens and might have been two days later might have been a week later I'll never forget, there was an interview of two kids that had just quit um, during the beginning of their either their junior or senior years at Duke University. And and for a guy like me, I, I mean, I was, I don't know, 10 years past uh, college. I'm like, Duke kids are going to quit in the middle of their undergrad to go serve their country? This is cr- the level of patriotism yep. that that represents is just mind-boggling to me. Because when you think about war, it's usually the folks that have fewer options, maybe socioeconomically or not as well off. But, I mean, two Duke kids right, vol- right. quitting school for a period of time and, and volunteering to join the military. Uh, Pat Incredible. T- Pat, Pat T- Tillman. Oh, my gosh. Uh, leaving the NFL. So, you, 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 yeah, if you, if you ever think you have a, a, you're having a bad day right. or a bad week or a bad month, there are plenty of examples where people have it a whole, so much worse than you do. And then, uh, and then, being a history teacher, um, you know, just being thankful that you know I get to teach and coach at a wonderful school and be around great kids, and uh, there there are people out there doing tremendous hard things so that people like me can do that. Yeah. Uh, it it it's uh, it, it's incredible what others do for us so that we can you know have these opportunities it's good to remember how fortunate we are for sure uh all right so you mentioned 9-11 before we started recording you'd mentioned you taught a class on that could you say more about that class yes so i uh i taught history for uh over a decade at st christopher's um world history courses a lot of 20th century focus but i taught a senior elective called 9-11 to now and, and you developed the curriculum for it. Uh, I was I developed it with our history department chair. He was the okay. leader, so he was the pilot, Andy Smith, who you, sure. who you probably know real well. He, he taught me eighth grade English and was my bulldog basketball coach. Yeah, so Andy Smith was our history department chairman, uh, and he was the middle school principal when I was a student. So it was yeah, an yeah. example of working with him. But it, it it was his brainchild, and but I got to work with him in helping to develop it, and the course was. A senior elective divided into, uh, I'll say, three parts. Studying the day itself, and when the course started, the students taking the class were in elementary school on 9-11. So they have vague memories of it. Um, as the course ran its life, we were ta- teaching students about 9-11 who did not live through it because they were too young or hadn't been born. The second part of the course was the 100-year period uh, the 20th century leading up to 9-11 and the third part of the course was the post 9-11 world so the the course was constantly evolving from one year to the next uh, based on what was happening in in the world and also 
based on what uh, students brought to the class in terms of their own knowledge and memory. Yeah. Um, and that was something I, I always liked about being a teacher and as a coach. You teach that class, it puts winning and losing a game into perspective yeah. again. Um, and then, and then also, it's a reminder of ultimately what are we here to do as educators, whether it's on the court or in the classroom. We're we're trying to we're teachers, yeah, and helping these young men uh, be thoughtful, informed, contributing citizens. Yeah, you're talking about uh, juxtaposing playing a sport with what happened on 9/11. Um, obviously, much much more serious event that happened on that day. Uh, playing basketball because you and I both play mm-hmm. uh, you're striving and that's the point what you learn and, and how you develop from striving like that is important if the backdrop is it's not the most important thing happening in the world that's okay you're, right. you're working on yourself and, and you are becoming better because you're putting yourself through a, a tough uh, set of circumstances it's uh, one of the things we really talk about St. Chris at St. Chris now is the the pursuit of excellence of course, we hope that the boys attain excellence, but you can't guarantee that. Right. But you, you can uh, constantly pursue it and, and learn that that's ultimately what's most important. What is your process like? Are you working as hard as you can to position yourself for success? So your, your effort um, is what matters a lot more than where you end up. Absolutely. Yeah. And that's something we try to incorporate into our coaching as well. Yeah, that's really cool. Uh, I have to ask: Did you sure. ever have Bob Blanton? I did. And did he, he, in Latin? Uh, no, not for Latin. I had him. Uh, I, uh, I worked out in the weight room with him when I was a player. And uh, our team will be lifting with Bob Blanton later today, as they should be. He's still there fifty more than fifty years at St. Chris. Yeah, because Bob's in his seventies now, right? Yes, and between him and Don Galladay. I, I, I saw him last year. I couldn't believe he's two, still there. Two current faculty members who have been at St. Christopher's more than 50 years. And with Ron, last year, Ron Smith retired. So we had three faculty members who had spent more than 50 years each at the school. And Andy retired, what, a couple years ago? And, and he retired. He wasn't, I don't think, quite at 50, but he was pretty close. He was really close. He wouldn't like me saying that he was that close to 50. <laughs> but uh, I, had, I had Andy on this podcast. Oh, you did? Yeah. But that was fun. Oh, absolutely. He, he's a uh, he's a very interesting guy. He's he's helping me with a project that I'm working on. He's now the school archivist. Okay. In his you know uh, kind of a part time gig, but what a great person to do that. But he's helping me do a research project on a former St. Chris basketball player. You were it, telling me about this. Yeah, this is awesome. Yeah, he, he graduated. Apparently, as a kid, like he could not. His name was Jack Parr, and he could not – the proverbial, like, couldn't walk and chew gum at the same time, couldn't catch, but he actually could run. And uh, during his time at St. Chris, he ended up growing and, uh, you know, was maybe 6'8". Which is really tall. Um, got a scholarship offer at the 11th hour to go out to Kansas State. and It had to be, I think we said, for JUCO first and then Kansas State. He he did actually a PG year at St. Chris. Oh, okay. And then went out to Kansas State, and you know, freshmen couldn't play their first year at that time. But how does Kansas State find a PG kid? So Christmas? so there, and this is where it, I think it gets really fascinating. Um, they heard about Jack Parr through another recruit. Hey, there's this kid in Richmond you ought to take a look at. 
the coach at Kansas State, they were coming off an 11 and 10 season. And so they were desperate. And uh, Kansas Jayhawks were a power, you know, not far away. Uh, but this young coach at Kansas State was willing to look anywhere. And somebody told him about this kid out of Richmond who was tall and could run. And they needed a big guy, apparently. And so he's off at Kansas State. Jack Parr ends up growing to 6'10". Uh, before too long, he's jumping center for the Wildcats when they play Kansas, and their center was a guy named Will Chamberlain. How crazy is that? And uh, the Jay or the Wildcats during Jack Parr's time, you know, went from being eleven and ten to being a Final Four team. Wow! And, and this is back in the fifties, mid fifties, yeah, yeah fifty four to fifty eight. Well, the coach for Kansas State, the young coach was Tex Winter. Tex Winter goes on to be probably the most famous NBA assistant coach of all time. Phil Jackson's right-hand man. Designed the triangle offense. Taught it to Phil Jackson. Taught it to Michael Jordan. Taught it to Kobe Bryant. And, you know, however many nine NBA championships later. Might have been ten. Uh, I know Phil, Coach Phil Jackson ended up with 10 or 11. I think he ended up with 11. I don't know if Winter he retired have, yeah. before the last yeah, yeah. two. But, uh, you know, he, he just, Tex Winter had a huge impact on basketball. And so if you're a young coach and you're an 11 and 10, 11 and 10, and you, you're not beating your rival, you very well may go from being a young coach to being a former coach. Right. And so this guy from St. Chris, Jack Parr, was part of a recruiting class that helped turn the tide for Kansas State. And who knows, maybe we don't hear Tex Winter and the triangle offense if they don't have success with Kansas State in the 50s. It's Michael, just been really neat. Michael Jordan doesn't win six championships, yep. maybe. Yeah, exactly. You never know. You never know. Because Jordan, uh, as good as he was, um, you know, they, they, a lot of teams knew to just, hey, in the playoffs, like the Detroit Pistons. Just beat him up. Just beat him up. Yeah. The other guys aren't going to be ready to make a play. Beat up Jordan. You know, they might win a game, but they're not. He can't withstand it for a seven-game series. Right. But the triangle uh, incorporated that team play while still letting Michael be Michael. Oh, it's the most effective offense I've ever seen at the professional level, other than whatever San Antonio was doing when Duncan was there. Right. Right. Uh, so it was, it was a fascinating story, and then uh, there it was also pretty neat. You, you know the name Petey Jacobs. Uh, yeah. A longtime coach at St. Chris, and, and interestingly enough, at collegiate or rival. So at St. Chris. Not, that's not supposed to happen. Yeah, there's Jacobs Field, where Coach Simandera leads the Saints to all those baseball wins. And then there's Jacobs Gym at collegiate. Same guy. Same guy. So, <laughs> uh, and, and everybody loves him, uh, you know, at both schools. Yeah. So, but Petey Jacobs was Jack Parr's coach. Oh, wow. And he saw something special in him and coached him up when he was just that gangly 10th grader. Yeah, that's a pretty cool story. Pretty pretty neat. So I've had fun uh, researching that. The connection to Tex Winter, who obviously is connected to Jackson and Jordan, is huge. But Chamberlain was, a, I mean, no pun intended, a giant of the game. Like, nobody had ever seen him. I heard story of Chamberlain. He was playing with the Lakers just to – he was there. He's 43 years old. And he uh, had, like, 18 block shots or something crazy. So the the Kansas State – folks were great i reached out to them do you have any video footage of jack parr so they sent me a 
uh, some clips of Jack Parr playing against Kansas. Maybe it was his sophomore year. No, no, Will Chamberlain. Will Chamberlain was a year younger. Right. And it just looked like a normal 1950s game with normal guys. Then they also sent me the following year with Will Chamberlain. And it was incredible to turn that on and just see how physically dumb. He blocked the, sh the first shot from basically the top of the backboard. So we were talking about Armando earlier. Uh, I can only imagine what it must have been like to coach against Will Chamberlain the first time. He, he uh, you know, is so graceful and athletic. and He couldn't shoot from 20 feet, but that's all he couldn't do. Right, right. Yeah, so it was neat to go back and look at that that footage as well. And uh, I'd, Will Chamberlain, just looking at him, you, you know, as a sports fan, you always kind of wonder, all right, if we took Babe Ruth and put him in a major league game today, how would he do? Uh, you know, that the twenty five year old debate. Of him, yeah. yeah, exactly. Will Chamberlain, he he looks like one of those guys that you know you <laughs> you'd put him in the modern game today, and uh, I know it's a different game with all the three-point shooting, but he, he, he'd probably find his way to be pretty successful. I think he'd be a star, no question. Yeah, because he was, he was how tall? I think he was seven feet. Yeah, he was seven, seven feet. feet. And graceful. Yep. And fast, and he could jump, and very coordinated. Yeah, he'd be, he'd be just fine. And, uh, but the, uh, the St. Chris guy, Jack Parr, his, his go-to move is something you never see anymore. And it was a version of uh, Kareem's sky hook. Oh, nice. Which you, I can't, that seems like such a difficult shot. Especially when it's from 20 feet. When it's from 20 feet. And it was funny to watch these tapes because guys are throwing in these That's how most of crazy shot hook shots yeah. uh, with regularity. There was a lot of, uh, they, they didn't have the traditional jump shot that we think of today. Not most of them did, didn't seem to have it, but you when, watch more film than I have. Sounds when like. you, when you played, uh, well, I'm curious because you were playing at the advent of the three-point line. What was I that? graduated just before the three-point line? Okay, just before. I was going. Uh, I was so angry when that came into being for Virginia high schools. Oh, I've, to have a three-point line at high school would have been amazing. I was going to ask. I was wondering back when it first came into uh, play, was taking a three-point shot sort of the forbidden fruit? Because now teams are shooting. I mean, last night uh, we we played and. Uh, we played St. Anne's Belfield, and they've got a really good team. They shot 32 threes, and we shot 25. Yeah. And uh, unfortunately for us, they, they made a lot more than we did. It was one of those nights. But to, you know, 60 – or I'm sorry, 57 three-pointers, three that's a lot of threes in one game. That was not happening in 1988-89 when it came in. And I, so I played with those guys that ended up winning the state championship the next year. Uh, the vibe that I picked up on was if you shoot it, you better make it. Right. And if you don't make it, you're not going to be shooting that for a while. <laughs> so may maybe there were three or four in the game and, and you were being, and if you were the one who took all four of those, you better have made two. You better of them. make them. Yeah. Cause I, yeah, there was no concept. There was no history there. So we didn't know what was good. If you, if you made 35 out of a hundred, it's pretty good. Right. But back then it probably didn't feel very good. Now, now teams, they want layups or threes. Yeah. Because when you're a little kid, that's what you practice. Your yeah. layup or your three. You're not shooting the, the mid-range. The mid-range 12-footer. Yeah, so yeah. if you can get teams to shoot a lot of mid-ranges, uh, the analytics are usually in your favor. 
All right, so we're, you're obviously uh, a basketball coach, and I've talked to you about the sports podcast that I'm yep. pondering doing. Love to have you back on that. But as a sports lover, I, I think I can speak for both of us, uh, walk through what the rest of the season is going to look like. So for St. Chris, all right, so we are sitting at 18-6 and six overall, 5-2 and two in the prep league. Uh, both losses to St. Anne's Belfield out of Charlottesville, who's got an excellent team. Um, they got us last night. It was a one-point game in the fourth quarter, but they can get hot really quickly, and they, they had a barrage of threes that created the separation. Um, but we've got tough games coming up. We'll travel to Trinity. Uh, I hope Armando is not there. <laughs> um, Just for inspiration. So, yeah. So, uh, and that's always a – uh, a tough game. And one of the things that's so much fun about high school basketball, the environments are great. And uh, the thing about our league, you're, if we're playing in Richmond, whether it's at Trinity or collegiate, I mean, it's going to be uh, a game where you've got student sections exchanging pleasantries back like and forth. It. It's incredible. Yeah. And then you go on the road, uh, you know, it's, you know, your back's against the wall because you've, got your team and maybe your the parents there but then an opposing student section that's all over you so i mean they're big time atmospheres so we'll play at trinity on friday host ves on saturday uh and then next week we've got fork union and and finish out with collegiate at home to close down the regular season then the prep league tournament and then uh and then the state tournament is after that i have to ask you do you roughly know what your record is against collegiate I I do not. Um, I do know we've won more than we've lost. Um, Couldn't say that back when I was playing. The uh, it, it, one of the things we've been fortunate over the years to, uh, you know, we've we've had some really good players. I mean, we Nick Sherrod and mm-hmm. played a great career at Richmond and Alexander Petrie and a guy named Rodney Williams who played at Drexel and and so um, it's a great rivalry. Um, you know, and, and I think a lot of times, you know, the teams that, you know, coaching is part of it, but teams that have better players a lot of times win. Uh, they certainly have a leg up. You know, and, and that, yeah. that, that has been something that, um, you know, when Collegiate had Russell Wilson playing quarterback, they were pretty good at football. Yeah, it's hard to beat them. And now Coach McFall at Collegiate, fantastic coach as well. Um, but, uh, you know, the, a lot of the players have a they're the ones that uh, impact the game the most yeah well they're they're out there certainly playing it coaches have uh, a big part of that too but I, I do have to ask you because I met you a few days after you beat John Marshall mm-hmm. uh, and all you could talk about was how you were worried about a letdown in the next game or two or three the game ends at whatever time it ends. How many hours or days pass before you're like, I really have to help this team get back to uh, ground level? And how did you do it? it I mean, it was, it was fun, uh, you know, to have that type of experience. It was fun to see the guys so excited. You know, to lose by 42 and then to, to win. have the win. I mean, that was a neat moment. And so you want to enjoy it. Um, I was actually not prepared for the reaction and what I mean by that we felt like we could win you know in our locker room we talked about it we felt like we could win we actually pulled up uh, 
and printed out some bulletin boards from the VCU uh, fan site of people that were planning to come to the game. And, you know, they weren't saying anything bad, but they were coming to see Brandon, as they should, against good competition, which is true. None of them were expecting a win. Yeah, of course. Yeah, they were talking, they were expecting to see a blowout. We printed that out, shared that message with the guys before the game, and you could see, like, they were ready. And so we expected to play well. Um, we knew we had a chance to win. And so when we won, we were excited, but I wouldn't say that we were shocked. You know, it was that sense of, like, we just did something that we knew we could do, but we knew it was going to be really hard. And now we're enjoying it together. I think the shock was very much outside of our mm-hmm. locker room. And it was really neat, though. Um, I know I got more texts from people oh, that your, I've, your phone had that, to that I've up. ever connected with, and I hope I got back to all of them. But it was really special to think about the relationships that led to that. Former players, uh, parents of former players, friends and the enjoyment that they got from the from the win that was neat it was it, you know showed what the St. Chris community is all about and then also the uh, it made me think about through basketball the wonderful relationships that I've been fortunate to develop over the years um, so I wasn't necessarily prepared for all of that and I can only imagine what it was like for the guys, you know, Brandon in particular. Yeah, Brandon, but you know, Stewie hit five threes and which is Darius pretty, played great. Pretty cool. But the the Instagram likes and likes of tweets and whatnot, I, I'm it's, sure I'm it was sure hard. got a national reaction. So then our next game was on Tuesday against Woodbury Forest. Uh, well, Tuesday there was the big threat of weather, and so we weren't able to practice on Tuesday because we needed. The, the school sent everybody home early in case there was a severe storm and wind. Well, the coach in me is like, oh, no, because now we can't practice. Woodbury is a boarding school. They so can. You, you knew they were practicing. And then we, uh, we played them the next day on Wednesday and squeaked out a win. Uh, but one of the things that was really cool in that game, we got a huge lift from one of our seniors, a guy named Connor Campbell, who did not get any playing time in the John Marshall game. But we, you know, I think we were emotionally drained and just not sharp. And Connor hit a big three. He took a charge. And there's no way, you know, of course, like Brandon, you know, he had a great game and guys made plays. But I don't think we win that game without the contribution from Connor. Yeah. And that's when it's really fun as a coach when you see a guy who, you know, is ready when his name is called and steps up and helps his team. There are fewer things better in sports than that kid who doesn't get a whole lot of playing time. Yep. He comes in and has a nice little five minute spurt. It was great. It was yeah. awesome. Uh, it was one, of, and he he's an awesome kid that um, you know, does everything you could ask to the best of his ability. And uh, you know, he's not six four two eighty five, but he he his heart is as big as anybody, and he gives you everything everything he's got so I was really happy those are the fun moments like when you coach like you want to you know the wins and everything are nice but now I really try to think more about like acquiring neat moments you know 
how do you, whether it's for an individual kid or with your team, uh, you know, whatever happened, we lost the game, can't do anything about it now. Like, how do we go after the next special moment that we can grab together as a team? Yeah, it's a team sport, and there's yeah. nothing finer on earth, in my opinion, than a team sport. All right, you want to end with tell me about your family? Uh, sure. Um, all right, mentioned uh, mom and dad. Um, my dad is a lawyer. Uh, he's he's in that um, sweet spot where he he's getting close to eighty, but still still practicing. But maybe he can. He's know, still practicing. Wow. Still practicing, but maybe he can go in on Tuesday afternoon and you know check out Thursday afternoon that that phase. Um, and my mom is a retired teacher. Uh, my wife. My sister is uh, paralegal at McGuire Woods. Okay. Uh, my wife is also a lawyer, does trust in the states. So everybody in my family, they're either teachers or lawyers or in the law profession. Uh, really, pr- a lot of history majors, maybe. Really, a lot of history majors, humanities. Really proud of uh, of my family, and and I'm very fortunate. They're great supporters. Like means a lot. They come to all the games, and that's awesome. And are there for me, and so that means a lot to look up and see. You know, my mom, my dad, my sister, um, and my wife will be there. And then, uh, but she's not always there, but we've got three girls, little ones, seven, five, and two. That's a lot so, of fun. So I've got to, I've got, I've learned over the years that I've got to be ready to uh, be present after a great win or a tough loss and, and go home and be ready to be dad. I, uh, yeah. Uh, so, uh, you know, Greg Popovich, the Spurs coach, he, uh, somebody asked him one time, what do you do after a, a win? And he said, I'd go home and have dinner and a bottle of wine with my wife. And so he said, well, what do you do after you lose? I'd go home and have dinner and a <laughs> bottle of wine with my wife. Uh, I'm not always good about being, you know, the losses sting. Sure. And you can have restless nights, but trying to make sure you keep it in perspective. And family is, is good for doing that, for sure. I'm very fortunate. Uh, I think it's ironic that you uh, coach a boys basketball team, a high school boys basketball team. And you go home to four. That's right. That's four right. Females. Everybody gives me a hard time. They, because uh, you know, Coach K's got three daughters. Yes, he does. So uh, you know, the uh, like, are you just trying to be like Coach K? And you know, I think I think there's certain things, especially younger. I would try to look at Coach K and be like, I want to be just like that. But then you realize, like, you have to be you. Yeah. And and. Uh, uh, but yeah, yeah, yeah. I figure Coach K's got three daughters. That's a good thing. And I, he's a good uh, Coach K is a great role, role model, and uh, obviously, arguably the most successful college basketball coach of all time. So he's and, he's a good role model. And I love being at a boys' school and coaching boys. But um, having having three girls is is great. And uh, and the other it was the other night we were getting ready to go play collegiate, a big rival, and uh, um there was a big game at St. Catharines. They were also playing collegiate and it was a spirit night. And my wife was taking the girls to that as they should. And I loved it because my daughter asked, you know, if I was going to be going to the St. Catharines game that night, she had no idea that we were playing collegiate and didn't care. And it it was, it's a good reminder to, to, you know, uh, that every, you know, they're, they're, they're bigger things in the world than one particular basketball game you want to go give it everything you got but um you know it, it whether we win or lose like 
my kid's not going to care at the end of the day. It's a great reminder <laughs> that they have their own lens and uh, that lens matters as much as your lens. Yep, yeah, absolutely. Hamill, thanks for doing this. I really appreciate it. No, I appreciate, I appreciate you having me and uh, it was fun talking sports with you and teaching and former teachers and uh, really appreciate the opportunity. Good luck the rest of the season. Thank you. We'll, uh, we're going we're gonna to fight hard. I can tell you that. we got good kids. So uh, the plan now is to make some noise down the stretch. I love it. I wish you uh, nothing but the best. And uh, I think you guys are going to end the season really, really well. Great. Thanks, Paul. Thank you for listening. If you enjoy this episode, please subscribe to wherever you listen to podcasts. We'd also really appreciate if you'd rate and review us. You can find us at scodopodcast.com.